I'm Joe Crow Martinez, and you're listening to Adrian Has Issues. Hey guys, welcome to Adrian Has Issues. Today, I'm speaking with a very awesome guest who I feel insanely bad for taking as long as I did to have him on the show. (laughs) Now, if you guys have been listening for the last couple of months, you've noticed that a lot of the guests I've had on have been involved in what is known as the Creator Aftercon Network, which for those of you who don't know, um, I mentioned this back in episode 70. Buddy Scalera has a panel called Creator Connection, which aims to get comic book writers, artists, and other creative types in a room together, get them talking, and basically just make connections happen. And hopefully those connections will then be a part of your creative team for your next book. So afterwards, though, what the Creator Aftercon Network does is allows people at that panel or other creators to continue the conversations from earlier today at uh, comic book conventions where, you know, it's laid back conversation at pubs and restaurants. So, I mean, we talked to pretty much a lot of the founding fathers of that. Let's see, we've had J. Jacob Barker, who's sort of the ringleader in this very awesome circus, uh, you know, Stan Show, who's also been involved, Steve Petrovelli. And one of the links in that very awesome chain, um, I, again, it's sort of like a running gag because on the list of guests, I had circled his name multiple times and I get to talk to him today and he's super excited as, as am I. And let's see, he's a writer, director, producer. Um, let's see, you're a moderator, panelist, like you do it all, man. And you're super awesome. Please give it up for Johnny C. Johnny, how's it going, man? Hey, man, how you doing? And after, you know what? I laid it on pretty thick at New York Comic-Con <laughs> about, about not being on the show just because I, I'm actively listening. I, I, I love it, dude. I listen to it. on the, It's awesome for my commutes because it's perfectly timed. And, uh, dude, I just love your perspectives. And we're into the same things. So it's like I feel like I'm becoming your friend even more through the podcast. You know what I mean? Right. And like I said, it was one of those things that had to happen. And even after other than, you know, creator after con related stuff, you're just an awesome dude. So believe me, you were on that list. And also, thank you for listening too. that. I do appreciate that. No problem, dude. I mean, like, you know, I, I will primarily I, I noticed that you had all of my New York Comic Con friends on. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I was actively listening to Stan and Jeff Ryder. Uh, Stan Show. <laughs> I forgot to mention it before in the introduction. Yeah, Jeff Ryder also. Shout out to Jeff because he's awesome. Yeah, Jeff is the man. Uh, me and Jeff have actually done a lot of traveling in uh, this past year in 2016. We we both had panels in uh, San Diego. Uh, we had an opening at the last minute. I was able to facilitate getting him into on onto the panel I was doing as well. Um, and it's just you know we were sticking together. We were you know we were palling around at shows. It was pretty cool. What I love about the friends that we have is that. There's so many distinct personalities and like any sort of superhero team, you kind of need that. And, you know, I was funny at Aftercon, we were joking that like Jeff is kind of like the Tony Stark of the Aftercon. <laughs> yeah, you know, because he's he's drinking the uh, whiskey, you know what I mean? And he's got the uh, glass and he's just he's always wearing the blazer and he's very sharp and he's very eloquent and he's just funny. And he's like he literally is like the Robert Downey Jr. of our group, you know what I mean? And in, in, in most senses. Right. And and I say this to be in the nicest way possible, but it's like if he is the the Stark, you're definitely, I would say, the banner, you know, because it's like, yeah, (laughs) because there's two sides of you that I've noticed now. Like I said, I've known you for a little bit now, and like there's obviously, like you said, your your banner, like you know, the very sort of stoic. But then there's very much the Hulk, like where I remember it was the Crater Aftercon after party of 2015 when you first came into the room. Like I remember you just coming up the stairs. And I forgot what you had yelled out loud, but like there was at least a good five seconds where like the whole place just got silent. It's like who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> so that show. That was like a um, a one day thing for me. Like I left Boston very very early, went to New York, did the show like you know full force, went around, met everybody, did the aftercon thing, and uh, the mantra was a four a.m. train because I actually had a four a.m. bus 
back to Boston. So, so the idea was for me to party long enough to make it to occupy my time up until I had to leave. And, uh, who was, it was J. Jacob Barker and Ellen Steadfeld who hang tight till like four o'clock in the morning, just <laughs> chilling with me, drinking like all night long, talking comics, like doing the whole after con thing till it's like utter extent. And, uh, and then I hopped on a bus and left. But uh, Steve, Pe- I actually owe Steve Petrovelli for the 4 a.m. train quote. He he was the one who kind of uh, uh, came up with it, and I adopted it and, and bellowed it all night long. <laughs> Just as like a rally cry, you know what I mean? <laughs> and I would say, though, we we may have to do a podcast or some sort of appearance where it's you, me, and Steve. Because for some reason, I feel like between the three of us, that, as we found out, is an amazing dynamic. <laughs> <laughs> um, me and Steve are kind of like the odd couple in a sense. We both get along very well, but like he's very put together and I'm very rough around the edges. You know what I mean? <laughs> we're, we're, we're like this equal yin and yang. Um, I don't know if Steve wants me to announce this or anything but me and him are actually collaborating on a sartana project in the future so i guess i kind of just spilled the beans right now there basically that's what this is all about is getting people together and you know working on stuff and it's funny you know we have our fun and you know it's a great time but at the same time when it comes to work you know you get down to business and i think that's what makes it work is that it's not all just for show like you guys really do also your money where your mouth is so to speak yeah, I mean, that's that's the bottom line is, you know, the, these networking events are made to put people in touch with, with each other, not only for friendships and things of that nature, but I mean, for straight up work. We want to make comics. We want to tell our stories. We want to share each other's artwork. So, I mean, given that we travel, uh, we go back, you know, I go, I'm in San Diego every year. I, you know, I've adopted New York uh, as a show I must go to every year and uh, I'm trying to expand that that branch. I go to all the shows locally to me. Um, I just came from Chase Con in Saratoga Springs this past weekend. So, you know, the more we branch out and the more we make people aware of, uh, you know, a network, a solid network of creators who actually do create and actually do put out work and they all support each other. It, it, it does exist. I mean, that's really the, the bottom line here. And speaking of telling stories, let's get into yours a little bit. I mean, we've known each other for a while, but at the same time, I'm always interested in knowing people's origin stories because as a comic book fan, you know, that, that obviously lends a lot of perspective. So I know it's kind of a loaded question, but where does it start for you? Like, I, I guess at what point did you decide that you weren't even just a comic book fan, that you wanted to be a creator as well? Well, it goes deep. Being a creator originated more with wanting to make films. Okay. And music videos and things of that nature, I mean, which I did. I, I've, I've directed a short films. Uh, I did a short film called uh, Reggie's Dance with a friend of mine from who's going to NYU and she, you know, she just, she needed a director and I was working with uh, friends of mine who were in a band uh, and I was doing a few of their music videos and we did like a short little goofy web series together, you know? So I kind of got thrown into it that way. I formed this thing called showy productions. It's a very hard to pronounce from looking at the name, which was by design, a uh, little outfit of friends who just got together and film stuff. And we really just were, you know, we weren't super serious, Leading up to that, we were just kind of having fun and learning the process, but uh, I got buckled down and I tried to make a pilot. I, I gave everything I could in making this pilot called Five High Street. It, it was uh, an idea of, uh, of a friend of mine, Joe Nasta, who was my cinematographer, he was my camera guy. It was basically about three roommates who lived together who tried to make the rent every month because they were all unemployed because they were stoners. <laughs> <laughs> so each episode is a month of them trying to make the rent and it would be like different adventures. And it had your typical formula of like, you know, like the, you know, the Ryan Reynolds leader guy, you had the troublesome, like cynical anarchist kind of guy. And then you had like the, Charlie Day, Homer Simpson kind of guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> nice. It was your typical formula. And uh, at that point, people moved away. Things happened. And I come to find that making movies and trying to take a run at things on a very shoestring budget where we can't, aff- you know, and by, mind you, like Kickstarter wasn't really, it was just getting started and, and or not even really a thing at that point. So like that really hadn't, like breached our, you know, our mind. And we were just trying to pull it together on shoestring kind of like the way the yellowy sunny guys did and uh it fell apart 
and I just I was I noticed this, you know, can't get 20 people all together on one day to coincide their schedules to work for a little to nothing, you know, pizza and beer to make something. And, uh, you know, I was crushed for a little bit. I was like, damn, like I really tried on this one. I, you know, I, I believed in it and, uh, it just kind of fell apart and it was really, I didn't want to have to remount it. We, we actually remounted it twice. We did it once things. We had to change a uh, location. We did it again. It fell apart. And I was like, damn, like it, it, like it was a, it was a blow. But then throughout this, I was going to Comic-Con. I went to San Diego in 2009, fell in love with it. I was like, this place is amazing. This thing, com- you know, conventions, these are great. All my people are here. I find people who are just like me. I can stand in line to meet people I admire and talk to people like me about stuff we like. Like, that's just awesome. Like, wh- wh- what more could you want? So how do I make this uh, a thing where I can do every year? How can I incorporate this into my life more? Because like, this is a very good, positive space. So like I sought out getting, becoming a professional, there was professional badges. So I did that, but I, I had to be a creator and I was a creator already, but not necessarily comics. I mean, it was pretty much the intention. Okay. I'll make a comic that'll qualify me for a badge. Uh, even though I have all this movie stuff and I actually intended to go to San Diego with like, Hey, I'm going to bring some of my film stuff. And I was going to the film classes that they do over there, you know, and I went to a creator connection for comics. It's actually the, um, Douglas Neff and Corey from creator Toucan blog creator connection that I went to their event and I was like, okay, it's more comic centric, but maybe I can meet somebody. You know what I mean? And uh, as I'm going through, I and that's actually where I've always had the intention to make this one book, this one comic, this one story actually called Clark and five, a post-apocalyptic story about a, uh, a boy in a robot in uh, New England, where artificial intelligence is now the superior race. Oh. Yeah, and that's a story I've been trying to tell for a very long time. At that first creator connection that I went to, I met Joe Arnold. I saw that he had a really great portfolio with some gunslinger pieces and Western-style stuff that uh, spoke to me. I've always loved Westerns. I grew up watching Westerns. It was just one of those things. And I've always wanted to make a Western and film one. Uh, that was another challenge. I live in Massachusetts. There's like two locations, rem- you know, local that are even remotely close to a Western and they'd be nothing suited for the story I wanted to tell. That inevitably would become Sartana. So me, that's where I met Joe. And we made Sartana the comic book and it was based on the uh, pre-existing character from a series of old movies, old Italian spaghetti Westerns. And then uh, after that, we collaborated. Uh, I made the book. I, you know, I said, okay, well, this book is uh, going to be the gateway. It's going to be the key to, you know, hopefully opening up a lot more. Uh, so we collaborated. We, um, I wrote the thing. I was like, okay, I can't do it as a uh, a film. I'm going to get Joe. His artwork is phenomenal, and I'll make the book. I'll make it in a comic book format, and um, and that's actively still going. So we actually just uh, we just signed up with uh, Think Like Productions, and we're going to re-release that first issue we did with. Uh, ccp comics through think alike with a second story so that will be a volume one hello fellow nerds check out our network site nerdslot.com you can also connect with us on social media like the facebook the twitter and the instagram if you like what you hear look for nerdslot on patreon and consider donating to help us continue delivering quality shows straight to your ears if you'd like to help the shows out for free head over to itunes and write a heartfelt review i mean it make me cry happy tears but seriously, though, anything you can do really helps us out, and we love you for it. Let's go back to Clark and Five real quick, because that sounded like an awesome story. And I don't know, when it comes to AI and robots and things like that, I'm such a sucker for that kind of storytelling. So I definitely want to know more about this. So how did Clark and Five get started? So Clark and Five, it's an idea that came to me where I didn't get it from anywhere else. Like it wasn't something that was inspired by something else. And this is kind of like an original idea that my brain just clicked one day and said, what if this happened in this scenario? Wouldn't that be cool? And, and you know, the basis being a post-apocalyptic world where artificial intelligence has now become a superior race. And what they do is they've suppressed humanity 
to uh, uh, suburbs and the outskirts of major cities with no electricity because of the way human you know, humans have left the earth. It's a book I've always tried to get made. And uh, it was actually at Special Edition NYCC, uh, Buddy Scalera's Creator Connection panel, where I met Chris. You know, I kind of pitched the idea to where I saw some of our artwork and uh, we linked up at the uh, Creator AfterCon. Hey there. Hey, how are you, Chris? Good. Good. Just got back from a long trip. At the start of the show, we were talking about our interactions with Creator AfterCon and how we've all kind of got together and all the people involved, which is funny because that's actually how I met you as well as Johnny is through this wonderful uh, group of comic book creators. So again, good to hear from you. Good to chat with you. Likewise. <laughs> And also, thank you for being my, oh shit, we're gonna miss the train, buddy. Because if you weren't diligent in getting back, I would have been, like, stranded on Friday, which I ended up not getting home for, like, another two hours. <laughs> we had that, my boyfriend and I, when we came back, that's when the, the train collision happened. So we had to go to Babylon and and find a cab. And, like, the cab service was helping everyone else. So we called another cab service which incidentally had a cab driver who didn't know how to drive, didn't know how to drive to where we needed to go. And we actually watched her still try to figure out how to leave the train station that she dropped us off at as we finally got in our car and left. Friday night, I left with you because basically you're like, oh, I got to go. And like the trains, you know, they get weird after a certain amount of time. So the Friday night of Creator AfterCon, um, I basically ran with you back to the trains and I thought I was going the right way. But the announcer, of course, they never speak clearly on the uh, the speaker because it made it sound like I had to transfer to Jamaica to continue down the line. But turns out that was for another line that wasn't even mentioned. So I ended up jumping the train and ended up, I don't even know what town I ended up in. So I didn't get home for like another like hour and a half, almost two hours. Then on Saturday night, like you said, there was the train collision. So Eileen and I both, we... Went down the regular line, had to start, go to Babylon, basically go down the line, transfer, go back up the line just to continue back down to where we needed to go. Like, we didn't get home until, like, pretty much the sun was coming up. Oh, my God. And that's the worst part. I didn't even get a chance to make it back because the trains were still so horrible from the uh, derailment that I didn't even get to make it back to Sunday. So I felt bad because I wanted to catch up with everybody again. But at least we all got to, you know, hang out. At least for a little bit before the trains kind of got a little wacky. So thanks for um, quite literally just dropping in out of nowhere. It's because um we were just talking Clark and Five, and it's like, well, who better to talk to than a person who's working with Johnny C on his project? Actually, have the scripts that Johnny just sent right in front of me and a red pen. So we're doing that thing again. <laughs> I'm making all my notes <laughs> and everything. Yes, I'm, I'm looking forward to her marking up that script. <laughs> this this. This book has been quite a challenge for me. Like I said, because <laughs> I, I gave Adrian the heads up about how, like, this is the book that I've been trying to make since the very beginning. And, uh, you know, when I when I met Joe Arnold in San Diego, he wasn't too keen on doing Clark and Five. But uh, he had those really sweet gunslinger pieces. And then, we you know, we agreed upon doing Sartana. Um, when during Sartana's downtime, I was still actively seeking artists for Clark and Five. And as a matter of fact, Chris can attest that she, you know, when she was invited into the Dropbox folder with all my notes and all the previous uh, sample pages of many different artists who've tried out and they just nobody really worked until I met Chris and her art style just clicked and it was awesome. <laughs> she um, she pulled the character from my head better than anybody I possibly could. And I didn't even have a clear idea of what Five the Robot would look like. Um, Adrian, did you got the sketchbook, right? Yes, I did, which is, looks fantastic, by the way. Super excited about this book. When I saw the Dropbox, because when I first met Johnny and we started talking, I just had an idea in my head from what he told me, and then I got the sample script. And from there, I was like, all right, this feels a little bit more young adults um, because it's going in the past. I was thinking, like, this, this character is probably at the oldest, maybe 16, and that's how I drew him. When I got in the Dropbox, I was like, oh, hey, the first drawing of, of Clark in here, he's like this tall buff guy with a beard and everything. <laughs> and I was like, weird, because I drew him like I basically took features. I looked in a mirror, took features from my own face and, and mixed them with like my quick sketches of what Clark would look like in my layouts. 
And I just, like, took my own features and made them more masculine, a little bit more broad and everything. So I was like, this is as different as it could possibly have been from the original direction that was taken (laughs) in that Dropbox. Seeing as how uh, Chris's vision seems to be drastically different from what was uh, originally drawn. So uh, how did you take that? The core of the story I always had in place, you know, it was about this unlikely friendship in this tumultuous post-apocalyptic future where society's flipped on its head. We as humans are inferior to these artificial intelligences. It was trying to find that sweet spot. I mean, uh, you know, as a creator, you know, you kind of evolve over time. And uh, I think, uh, again, given that this is the book that I've always wanted to make, uh, my experiences on making Sartana and working on uh, Surrounded by Death definitely changed things. And uh, when Chris came on and she gave me her sketch because i also wanted to give chris artistic freedom i always think that like you know some collaborators what they do is they you know they find an artist that's willing to collaborate but then they jump on them and they just basically dictate this is how i want this to look and this and this and this and then they burn them out i wanted her to do just her take what her kind of gut instinct was so uh i mean and chris i don't know if you agree or not but i kind of just let you i gave you general broad strokes i really didn't give you precise detail You gave me a little bit of a direction with five, but when I got that direction, I actually only, the only changes that I made to the original concept when I started drawing five again after my initial idea was uh, these wires are stupid and they kind of look a little too like 80s cyberpunk-ish. And as I was drawing five more and more and more, the note was that he he needed to look like a I keep forgetting the character's name. It was the robot from TMNT. Oh oh, uh, uh, Fugitoid from TMNT. Yeah. Wow, that's a deep reference. <laughs> yeah, it was honest to, honest to God, Adrian. I have that cover that uh, who is this Fugitoid in my room? And like when I when the idea of Clark and Five like struck me, I took that image, I put it up, and I was like, that's what I'm striving for. Like, that's what I want. I want this character. I want this TMNT, this organic, indie, awesome story. I want to tell this. You know what I mean? And uh, and that was basically the the five was, in fact, the first character I came up with. And then Clark followed shortly after. Yeah, five is actually the first one I drew uh, when I started contacting Johnny. I don't know why I went with a little bit more of a cyberpunkish thing, but then when I was told Fugitoid, I was like, all right, let's look back at Fugitoid, like how, how he's been drawn through time. And then I was like, okay, you know what? I'm also going to look at pet robots to see how like more realistic I can make a robot for now for this story. And especially cause I started thinking it more like a young adult comic that this would appeal more and it would, translate better as a friend rather than an enemy having the wires stick out in the original drawing i was just like all right there are two things wrong with this one he doesn't look like a nice friendly robot that you want to have like towing around and then eventually i just started drawing cats all over five just because i thought it'd be fun <laughs> um, so she went from she went from uh, that movie uh, that uh movie hardware came out in 1990 with dylan mcdermott that's a deep cut she went from that like that, that gritty, like very scary to like uh, uh, Big Hero Six, like Baymax and armor. Like it, it was like literally a flip, you know. And and the story evolved by that. Like you know, uh, originally I did have kind of more of a grittiness in mind, and then I also kind of realized in collaborating with Chris and getting a a, a great female voice and perspective that maybe this should be a little bit lighter and not as serious, and maybe let certain not the aesthetic be serious, but maybe let some of the story elements take that. You know what I mean? Oh, that's actually an interesting thought process. I didn't think about that because as you were changing the art, obviously the story has to change to reflect that as well. And not for nothing, though, I guess at the time in which it was created, you know, there was a very long period where those type of robots and that kind of aesthetic was very popular. So, you know, that like I said, it was a sign of the times. But, you know, like I said, with Big Hero 6 and other stories where now robots are seen a lot more friendly and i don't know if that's maybe one of those things like after like irobot or something like that where they became sleeker and less menacing like you know old school terminator style wally ruined everything we went, we went <laughs> wally, from Arnold to wally. 
Oh, snap. You got some Wally hot takes here. Let's go. Uh, Chris, you had the floor, and then I'll get your rebuttal, Johnny. I, no, it's just, I, I just really enjoy Wally because it's simultaneously a great story for looking at what's really both a dystopian future, but not the dystopian future you expect. Uh, but it's also like really, really good on nostalgia because of all that stuff that Wally digs up in the first act of the movie. Right. And then that animation sequence that they have for the the ending credits that gave me personal satisfaction because I was sitting through that movie with an actual rocket scientist who has to end the movie with like, that was really cute. They would never have been able to stand up at the end of that film after having never walked a single day in their life. And I was like, yes, everyone should be well aware of that, but let me enjoy this art history sequence because this is like just going to purely wipe out any any sad feelings I had watching that movie. Because Pixar is really good at like manipulating your emotions. They're, that's <laughs> one of the best things that they've been doing for Disney. Like Disney's forced themselves to change on that basis. Right. So Johnny, then I guess, well, you said they ruined things. So I don't know. Well, I, I guess you feel like you have a different. I, I was totally joking. I mean, because <laughs> I, I haven't seen Wally, I, so I don't know. I can't comment one way or the other, but uh, from an ignorant perspective, it's like Wally is to the Terminator what Twilight was to vampires. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but I've never seen it, so I can't. I'm not. I'm not slamming it. I'm just. I'm just using it as a as a model, something to to you know lean against or whatever. That is awesome. So, Chris, because I had asked Johnny this very loaded question, uh, getting his backstory, because, like I said, I've known you. It's been at least a year because we met at last year's Creator After Con. So how was it that then you got wrapped up in this crazy world of panels and sketches and thought bubbles? Oh, I've always wanted to be an artist. And I don't know when it was exactly that I decided I wanted to do comics because there is a moment in my life where I will call the dark times of uh, being about 14. And I was like, I want to be a manga artist. I want to go all the way to Japan. I want to be the youngest manga artist ever. And also be like the first manga artist that wasn't Japanese. And I was like, and then I got older and I was like, oh, hey, there are actually like people drawing manga that were 14 already in Japan. And that was just my ignorant uh, suburban American ass just thinking, hey, that'd be a really good thing to do now. And then also as it evolved, I was like, you know, I, I want to actually go to art school and that's a very unnecessary thing in Japanese comics. A lot of them, uh, a lot of artists over there were never writers, were never illustrators, but they ended up taking up a job that's both because in, in Japan, almost all manga is written and drawn by the same person. And it was like, oh, and I want to go to art school so I could be like a great artist like uh, Naoko Takeuchi, who who does Sailor Moon. I found out in my 20s, Naoko Takeuchi actually studied uh, pharmaceuticals and was a pharmacist when she started drawing Sailor Moon. Get out of here. Yes. Also, just fun trivia effect for people who don't know this. She married the creator of uh, Yu Yu Hakusho. So they're actually now a creator couple that are drawing comics in japan is really cool so are they like the japanese kelly sue deconic like matt fraction yeah <laughs> i was just about to say that adrian you took the words right out of my mouth <laughs> that, that is literally what they are they they met at a convention and were like oh man i'm a really big fan of, of your your manga and it's amazing that it's a tv show now and they started dating that is kind of sweet love what can you say <laughs> well i guess it's kind of like that thing that you know especially with hollywood it's like okay so you get into a relationship not at 10 times you're probably gonna date somebody who's already in that field because well who else would get you but the person who's already doing it which i mean that's got to be kind of interesting but yet i guess they have different styles different demographics so i guess there's not really much in the way of competition which is insanely helpful don't tell that to Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> oh, oh. <no>. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So, like the two things that I would always get fed to me that I never wanted fed to me were tabloids and Twilight. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I don't care about Twilight and tabloids, but I know everything about both. <laughs> yeah, well, 
I mean, the media feeds it to us pretty hard, so it's hard to avoid, you know, even yeah. not having being fully invested in it, just making the reference. It's like that's how ingrained in pop culture it is. You know what I mean? But at the same time, it's pretty much like as every bit convoluted as any like fictional comic book storyline. The only difference is there's no actual magic. There's no robots, but it all follows pretty much the exact same story arcs. Like real life days of our lives, like happening in Hollywood, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's one of those like stranger than fiction kind of things. It's it's always you think it's a simple thing, but someone's going to find a really good angle to make it blow up, whether or not it's true. I never really got the tabloid thing until like I got into the TV fandoms, and then I was like, I need to know all their lives, and then I got like really upset when certain actors died, and I was like, this is never what I wanted to be in my life. <laughs> this is everything i hated when i turned 20 why <laughs> <laughs> how, did I, how did i get here he's like eating hagen Dazs, crying like what happened a lot of the tv that i've watched was very much cut and dry being on twitter is something that has been both a blessing and a curse I mean, I say blessing because, look, I, this way I could pretty much read multiple comics, watch multiple shows without actually having to pick it up because you pretty much see the entire timeline pretty much reacting to these things. So it's like, oh, good. I pretty much watched like six or seven seasons of The Walking Dead without actually having seen it. And it's like, hey, that just frees up my time for other things. So it's not the worst thing in the world. So uh, I have to give full disclosure that I noticed a uh, startling parallel during the year of 2012, after I was uh, laid off from my uh, job at a uh, large internet job recruiting advertising company, I had a lot of free time on my hands. And actually, that's when I started doing a lot more writing. And I made the startling realization that soap operas on TV, like uh, Days of Our Lives and you know Guiding Light and all that stuff, General Hospital, and comic book storytelling were almost identical. Oh, yeah. No, it's all it's all interconnected. Oh, uh- Growing up, my my father used to be military, and he he learned a lot of martial arts at the same time that he was in service in the Philippines. And so when I was growing up, my father really instilled a enjoyment of martial arts, even though I wasn't formally trained anywhere or anything. And uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, everyone around me was all about wrestling. And the moment I found out that wrestling wasn't real, I just didn't get it. And years and years later, I have all my friends coming together again and talking about wrestling. And when I start listening to them, I'm like, oh, my God, it's just a soap opera with guys hitting each other with chairs. That's all it is. That's awesome. It's like the closest thing to comics that we have in real life. And it's really funny because I'm I'm really big into like looking into how other people interpret voices for established characters, like through, through fan fiction and uh, RP, like that side of fandom is really fascinating to me. And I actually do a a forum based RP as Tim Drake and a multi fandom thing. So it's like Tim Drake meeting Rapunzel and like Teen Wolf characters and the wrong flash from the CW flash. So he's like really confused and stuff like that. But, um, there's one really great writer uh, who took the DC comic universe and retranslated it all into wrestling. Like the Flying Graysons were these great wrestlers that influenced a nine-year-old Clark Kent to be a, a super Superman wrestler. And like taking uh, a young Bruce Wayne who feels like the world is so unjust after his family died. And the only place that he can find solace is in, in a the squared circle where like the scripting is, you know, that the baby face will eventually turn everything around. And I was like, this is really fascinating. And I really want to start watching wrestling, but at the same time, like I don't have cable. I'm like, this is finally where it's aligning for me to want to watch wrestling. And I don't really have an easy means to it. I grew up watching a lot of CBS. So and I'm thinking to myself, of course, as a kid, soap operas are like the death knell. Because if it's not cartoons or X-Men or Power Rangers, I didn't want to bother with it. But yet, I'm, as I'd sit there and watch it, like when I'd be at our house, I'm like, wait a minute. I recognize this story. And it'd be like an episode where somebody dies and like my grandmother's reacting. And I basically would be like, no, they're not dead. Watch. Give it another couple of months. They're going to come back and it's going to be a big storyline. And everybody's going to be like, oh, I thought you were dead. It turns out like, wait, I wasn't dead. And sure enough, I called it. Like if there was a way I could actually put money in it, like I bet you in three months, this character is going to come back to life. 
and they're going to be played by a different actor. Because how many times <laughs> have characters died and been resurrected and it looked completely different, but yet they're the same? Yeah. So poppers have been doing it forever. <laughs> right? Or my favorite is the, the the kids in soap operas because how many times in soaps has a character had children, they've been born, and next thing you know, like maybe three weeks later, all of a sudden they're already twenty years old, but no one else has ever aged. Kind of like the, that's like the issue they are having on uh, Gotham with uh, the the kid playing Bruce Wayne's growing up so quickly they don't even know what the hell to do with him. They're going to have to start throwing him into, like, boarding school storylines and, like, sending him off to the Swiss Alps. But then, like, low on the down low, like, you know, he's actually, like, going to Nandaparabat and starting to learn martial arts and shit. Yeah, they really backed themselves into a corner on that show. I wanted to love it so much. And it was, like, the less that they were talking about Bruce Wayne and the more they were changing Jim Gordon, the less I could care about it. It's like they said, stylized fluff. It's no longer Batman, really, unfortunately. Yeah. It's just one of those things. It's uh, but it's got its audience. It's still on. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's one of those things. And if anything, if it brings people to the Batman comics, all the better. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I do want to pick it up again because where I left off, they decided that B.D. Wong would be an excellent Hugo Strange. Oh wait, is he Hugo Strange? He's Hugo Strange. Oh, damn it. I don't know. Is that going to get me to watch the show? That's almost an incentive. I don't know if I could do it again. It hurts too much. Yeah, right? Because it's B.D. Wong playing Hugo Strange, and he's so good at it. But I I haven't been able to keep up with it, because every time we turn back to Jim Gordon, I just go, God damn it, Jim. (laughs) My mind immediately jumps. Like, on that show, my mind immediately jumps to, okay, are the characters age appropriate to when he's going to be Batman? (laughs) <laughs> it's like it, that's like a like i already nitpick like the specifics out of it. it's like oh wait a minute jerome's a little too young yeah, i don't think he could possibly really be the joker you know and then they they do what they did with the joker and i'm just like i don't know i don't know how he feels i don't about even know anymore i'm confused <laughs> but this is always what burns me about gotham and i'm kind of like this right now where you know my knowledge of dc is very sparse but it's kind of growing a little bit just from interacting with everybody and especially like with Eileen and her son who's like very big into it which is awesome so you know we're watching the flash right now so between me who's like space you know sparse uh, you know a little little knowledge of it someone who's very knowledgeable and then Eileen who's kind of like I guess the Joe West of us where it's like okay I'm gonna react to things but I'm kind of starting to piece it together so it's like I'm having a really good time with this so now I'm starting to see where the gaps are being bridged characters are being brought in you know things are they've basically did that thing that marvel did with the movies is they built this really fun universe but yet there's a couple of elements that are missing and i'm thinking to myself and i keep yelling this every time we watch an episode like why don't you just make the justice league series on a cw and they've already got superman all we need is a wonder woman show that's not terrible and a batman show that can actually interlink with it because there's no way they can throw gotham into that no way in hell it wouldn't make sense Batman is easily if not the oldest after after uh, Wonder Woman, one of the older members of the Justice League. It's like the bastard DC show because it goes up directly against Supergirl. It's on at the same time. So it's yeah. like whole, that whole DC TV universe, like they definitely don't regard Gotham. I mean, heck, they, they brought in Constantine over Gotham. You know what I mean? They're, they're, Gotham is its own thing. I would never expect it to see it crossover with any of the other stuff and that's only knowing some of you know i'm I'm not full-fledged with all the dc stuff it's really unfortunate too because it's like they had a good idea with gotham that just it went all over the place a lot more than any any other uh derivative dc or or any comic interpretation tv show that i've seen i felt like it entirely missed its direction it did things a little too fast and they they couldn't find a way to dig out uh, certain characters from situations that they were in and it was just like you know what would fix this right now if bruce wayne were actually already 25 and starting to work on that cowl they really should have left it to a lot more like mobster stuff and they started introducing superheroes way too early and this speaks volumes to something that i guess maybe other indie creators can learn lessons from kind of bringing it back to comics a little bit is basically knowing what you have yeah Look at it this way, like Fox, like every other network right now, you know, obviously superheroes are still big business. Everybody wants in on it. 
But it's like, all you know is you want a property that's popular or at least has enough recognition that you can draw from that and you could, you know, do a lot of things with it. But when you deal with a character who has had a lasting legacy as, let's say, Batman, you know, there's so many things involved with it. Like, you can't, you have to respect it and also know what you have, knowing how it works, because I think someone had the idea, it's like, all right, we want to do Batman, but we don't want to necessarily just do him, you know, as a Cape Crusader. So what do you do? And you're right, having him at least as a teenager, you know, at least kind of like at least where Batman begins, for those who at least were familiar with the Nolan movies, where he's obviously not running Wink, or like he's running around in where was he i don't know if it was like you said it was a thailand i can't remember but he's basically going through all these countries studying the criminal element like walking among them and that way you can kind of do a lot of things with that where you know he comes back as the disgruntled youth you know standing up against the mobsters even though he doesn't have a prayer in the world there's so many great stories you can already pick from that would make for amazing television but if you don't have somebody like a good creative team to basically rein things in and say, hey, this works or this doesn't work, you know, it screws up your stuff. And it's probably the most G-rated way I can say that. (laughs) So (laughs) if I could put my movie preview show hat on for a moment, I think, and this is my best bet of what happened with Gotham. Some executive picked up the rights to the actual Gotham PD book. And then in the translation of going from that to the TV show, some executives had to get their fingers into the project and was like, no, no, you know, we have to make Bruce Wayne more uh, involved in this. And, you know, no, we have to showcase all these characters, you know? And uh, I think probably going through that filter, it became more Gotham Academy, uh, you know, like the, uh, the animated series they were trying to do, like, like Bruce Wayne in high school versus the Gotham PD show that it was intended to be. Cause it literally feels like that was the transition is like, you went from, this, you know, NYPD blue type show, but set in the Gotham city to let's see all these young characters, like teenage versions of, or young versions of the villains that, you know, Batman faces. Right. You actually threw me off for a moment by saying Gotham Academy. Cause I was like, Gotham Academy is like Scooby-Doo in, in the Batman universe. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, no, 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 yeah. But it's, yeah, yeah no, no, that it's super kid friendly, but I mean, it's almost like, it's a, like a, a little taste of it's in there. You know what I mean? With like yeah. a young Ivy running around and young Catwoman. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, there was definitely an attempt to do what a lot of fandom would call a high school AU or, or Academy AU for uh, alternate universe for Batman. And, you know, it's kind of funny because there are people who've done that as, as like uh, side projects or like there's actually a scholastic book of uh, the secret uh, Secret Hero Society, and it's drawn by Dustin Wen, and it's really awesome. It's that it literally is that it's Bruce Wayne in a bo- in a small school, private school, and then he meets Diana Prince and and Clark Kent, and then the rest of the school is run by is villains. It's just all the other students are villains, all the faculty are villains, and they actually have like a class president thing with Lex Luthor versus Clark Kent and Lex Luthor wins as a nod to what happens in the actual comics. And it's like, all these, these things are like so much more successful. They're just like these either uh, official or, or non-official side projects that I've seen. Uh, but like when, when a lot of uh, executives get their hands on things, they want it to be more like what we're familiar with. Whereas these other projects with comics, you can go a lot further and and have a lot more fun with them. Once it goes on a TV property, there become a lot of limitations. And like the CW universe had a lot more of a time to like a, an ability to rein it in more. So it's successful, but it's really fun and you don't have to know all the comic book history for it. But with Gotham, it got too heavy handed, too name droppy. Um, and it was just, they, they didn't know how to slow everything down so that you have a fully fleshed story that doesn't feel convoluted. Right. And it's funny, like I said, drawing parallels to, let's say, something like Gotham to maybe the book that you two work on, like Clark and Five. And I guess, Johnny, kicking it to you, then, I guess knowing now where you see so many stories or properties where things got very out of control, like, I don't know, do you have any challenges when it comes to writing the story to basically be like, 
trying to rein it in and knowing what to hold on to and sort of just knowing what to let go. Because as we've seen in the case of Gotham, they had this amazing creature that they didn't know what to do with. So like, how does, you know, how do you keep that from happening with your work? Well, I mean, that's, (laughs) we can actually go directly to a quote that I can quote Chris on saying, please kill your baby. Which is actually a quote from a old Brittany Murphy movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's a thing that I, because I'm also a writer and I keep telling myself that. And like, uh, like I said, I, I have Johnny's script in front of me and I'm starting to dive in with notes. And, but at the same time, like I, I am keeping in mind, like I, with my own scripts uh, on, on my own projects. So right now I'm writing another thing called deep breath. And Fabian is editing that and he does the same thing to my script. And I just keep paging through it. I'm like, right, kill my baby. Gotta do it. Yeah. I'm so attached to little things and uh, I'm not beholden to big reveals and certain things like where, you know, Chris is like, dial it back. You don't have to tell them all that up front. And I'm like, but I don't care about that stuff. It's not about this. It's about this, you know? So it's, it's, it's the creator in me anxious to tell the whole story up front all at once right away. Cause I'm really excited about it versus reining it in and, you know, for the sanctity of telling a good story, you know, pacing it out. And the other thing was, I didn't also want to inundate Chris, which I, I then came to realize as well is that, uh, the, you know, the first draft I ever did, even before Chris came aboard was jam packed and it was just too much. It was, it was, and also it's coming from the perspective of writing, uh, you know, uh, for film, like, cause I, that's really kind of how I started is when I started writing, I started writing for movies and TV and what can we film? And, you know, just the idea of now starting to be able to not have to worry about a budget or not have to worrying about how do we pull this off? I can, you know, I have an artist who can, who can do some amazing things, but also not inundating them or or putting them in a scenario where you know their art style becomes strained because of bad storytelling right it goes back to that thing like you keep hearing uh people in general like i i don't want to limit it to just writers because a lot of people say this and it's like oh well you know the great thing about comics is like you don't have to uh wait you don't have to hold back and like go oh we can't blow up a helicopter like you have to say with a movie because of budget it's like oh you have an artist that can take care of all of that and it's like well you know yeah the artist can take care of that but the artist is also going to start screaming when you blow up a helicopter and and like five pages per issue and at the same time it's also a matter of like why do you want to blow up a helicopter in every issue it's an issue of like trying to figure out the actual pacing of a comic and because comics are generally uh, issue by issue and issues don't exceed typically 21, 22 pages, you do have to be economical with those scenes. Not in the sense of like special effects, but of what's happening in that comic. Because if you have too much going on, it's just too much to take in, especially in 22 pages. You don't want to I hate bashing on DC when I also very clearly am more of a DC person, but you don't want to turn it into Batman v Superman with like 5 million different plot lines going on. Oh no, with that movie, you're allowed to bash it. Don't worry. Cause it just, you know, from a storytelling perspective, I don't even have a comic book, but just from the things that I've written, it just, it hurt me. Cause that's the stuff that when I'm like my writing teachers in college would have like screamed at me for doing. It's like, how much can I feel like I'm getting sledgehammered with foreshadowing? Like you, there are times where it's like, do I want to reveal this right away? Do I want to be subtle with suggesting it? How much do I actually need to push that suggestion? And it's like every moment of just seeing Martha in that movie. I'm just like, all right, we get it. He has mommy issues. It's Batman. Everyone knows he has mommy issues. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. And the and the fact that Martha was the spoiler alert, Martha was the the linchpin for the whole movie. It drove it home. It was a little too on the nose, so to speak. As a big Batman and Superman fan in general, like I, I it just made me so mad because it took a thing that I always thought about and killed it. And that was the fact that Batman and Superman's moms shared the same name. I was always like, you know, have, have they ever mentioned that in the comics? And then they bring it into the movie. I'm like, all right. When I said I wanted this, I didn't want this like 
punching me in the face like I'm I'm going a few rounds. Not like this. Not like this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Does that go back to the whole like kill your babies dynamic thing, you know? Like <laughs> Yes. Yes. So Although there there are a lot more issues with that movie that, than just killing your baby. I think it's a matter of like maybe maybe Zack Snyder needs to pick up more comics than Dark Knight Returns. I don't know. He's got another chance on his hands with Justice League. We'll see how that ha- how that goes. I thought he's uh, he's not on that. No, he's directing that. <sighs> <laughs> I just sorry sorry to be the bearer of bad news on that one. <sighs> yeah, he's, he's and we just killed Chris. <laughs> yeah, there there goes Chris. <laughs> like, before you shuffle loose to Mortal Coil, tell everybody where they can find you on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that like it's crazy to now be an indie creator and having so much, you know, going back to the Gotham thing, like having all of this power in your hands, because I'm sure we all have stories about the books we've read where or stories you've seen even like on TV and such where you see what you have. Everything just goes horribly wrong. And now you're saying to yourself, OK, I'm not going to do it that way. Then they have to constantly just be like. Oh man, like I don't want to follow the same thing. And which is something I love about indie comics is that you have sort of an, I don't want to say an outsider's perspective, but no, that's exactly an outsider perspective of how things work and learning from places that, you know, they may have a larger market share, but don't have the, I guess, self control because they have to feed this beast that is like, you know, a conglomerate. Yeah, so it, it's kind of just going back to the whole idea of collaboration is that, you know, I'm, I was very close to this project. Um, you know, I, if you look at my, I use a program called Celtex to script. And uh, if you, if I look at my log file, uh, the file was first opened in 2012. That was when I wrote the first page of Clark and Five, like just kind of the idea of what I wanted to tell and what I was trying to do. And I toiled on it for a long time, de-aging, de-aging gritty lighthearted in between and then just find you know and working with these other creators these other people i've met along the lines who've taken a crack at it that um you know their style didn't really mesh with what i think i was trying to tell at the time and then once i saw chris's art it all clicked together and now and you know having finally scripted something that was cohesive as because i mean the the book like the first issue I wanted to actually make it longer and I had like, you know, an idea of where I wanted to end it, but then we kind of scaled that back and then I scaled that back even further and I uh, changed things. I had levels of violence that I, you know, then felt like, okay, well, this is more of like a YA kind of story because Chris's style matches that very well. Do I really want to put this type of violence in the book? You know, would that still work the same? So then I had to scale kind of, you know, the outline I initially had intended, I scaled back on and I said, well, maybe we'll just do things a little differently. Uh, and then at that point I felt, okay, well, now there's no action in this book. So I, you know, kind of concocted a sequence to give it a little bit more of an action kind of element. So that way it's got a little bit of everything, you know, it's got a little bit of everything for the reader. So you're thinking of it from a, um, I hate to say it, like an executive or a, uh, over you know an overarching view but you're also you know you're hitting all the points of things that you know would be exciting for a first issue in a book uh that would you know want people to come back for more uh but also you know giving chris the ability to come in and you know chop things up and say hey you know like think about this or condense this or look at this and you know having that because when you're so close to a project you know, you don't want to cut anything. It's your baby, you know? Right. So, uh, you know, to have her come in and be like, you know, and just have a, a fresh eye. Cause when you spend so much time with something, it becomes status quo and then you, and you forget and, or you don't think about cutting it. It's always been, you know, it's always there. And when you have new eyes on it, 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 it gives a fresh, you know, and something that feels stale because you also, as a writer, you have all this context in your head already. So as you're writing things, sometimes, at least for me, sometimes I slip like, Oh, like, I'll write something and I'm like, well, wait a minute. Will the, will the reader know that at this point? You know what I mean? Or is this something that is good to say because, you know, it's, it's establishing something or, you know, or am I jumping ahead here? You know what I mean? Right. And that was part of kind of all the problem I had with putting everything up front is because I wanted to give all this context. So that way I can do fun and unique things because the reader already knows. But then Chris came in and was like, no, we'll dial it back. You know, like you don't have to tell everything up front. You can, you know, kind of introduce things. 
So, uh, I mean, it's good to have those fresh eyes is because you get so attached to different ideas and different sequences and different ways you want to execute things that, you know, it, it wakes you up and goes, oh, wait a minute, there's maybe a better way of doing this. But at the same time, though, that also uh, speaks volumes to, you know, things like trust, because as, you know, we've learned, at least as I've learned, I'll put it that way, because obviously you guys have been doing this a lot longer than I have. But, you know, as far as things like, you know, yeah, there's plenty of, let's say, panels or opportunities at conventions for people to get together to work on books. And something that we kind of hinted at earlier is that even though you have a perfect picture in your head, you know, it may not necessarily be the right one. And to sort of trust that the rest of your creative team could then pitch in and you guys pretty much work on it together and be able to either let go or to step in and trust that each member of your team is going to pretty much bring it and do a good job because like I said, egos get in the way. And what's, I, I can't tell you how many times where I've written things and, you know, even like I'll say in school settings where like I wrote this great story and like I sent it to my writing professor and I, it comes back, the whole pages, it's red. It might as well just be dripping with blood. It's that red. And you're like, you get angry and it's like, well, how dare they? Like, you know, you don't understand my art and you, you get very. <laughs> That's the difference is not getting angry. I just recently sent this. I was up till 4 a.m. last night hammering out this first issue. I was just like, I'm going to get this done if it kills me. And even if it's not fully, like, fully, like, developed to every thread that I was trying to follow, I'm going to try to get something cohesive in her hands uh, just so I can progress. And, uh, and I know she's already off the bat. She's going to tell me the 23 pages is, is not the standard format. And, and we'll have a workaround for that, Chris, I promise. Oh, no, no, no. I don't care about standard format. I just want, like, it to flow really well. That's all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No worries, no worries. <laughs> I'm, looking forward to those, I'm looking forward to those notes. But, uh, I mean, like, it, it's not a matter of, you know, like, it, you do, don't get mad. Don't have prison mentality on your projects where in one, <laughs> in prison mentality is... You know, when you when you see like, like prison movies or like you hear about people in prison and they like eat hunched over their food so nobody else can take it. You know what I mean? So nobody can like steal their pudding or anything. Um, you know, <laughs> don't do that. Don't be so possessive of your project that you can't allow somebody to come in and give critique or for somebody to come in and to give their perspective because there's always something you may have not noticed. Right. Or you may have not seen because you're you're thinking of something else or you're thinking of, you know, you're too hyper-focused on one thing. You may overlook something that could be a really great gem for the story you gotta you gotta keep it open and that's all part of collaboration too if it was all one-sided if it was all me i'd feel like it wasn't a collaborative effort and i'd feel like i'd you know it, it, it wasn't a fair balance and it would just be a you know a mundane project for chris at that point i wanted to have ownership on it i wanted to feel involved you know what i mean even though it's a story that's so dear to me with collaboration it's like they're always Surprises. There are things that you always think of where you think of a, one character always being one thing or these two characters always having the relationship one way. And then someone else comes in and says, like, no, I actually see it this way. And even if they aren't a collaborator, if they're just someone giving feedback, you immediately have a knee jerk reaction of like, no, this is how I felt like it. And then you actually see it from their perspective and go, oh, God, that's actually way better. And I can't believe I didn't think about that. Like Brian K. Vaughn and Fiona Staples, like, you know, uh, Lana and Saga was originally thought of as being a white redheaded woman with green eyes. Oh, wow. And then Fiona Staples drew her and, and Brian K. Vaughn went, no, you're right. She's she's a brown haired woman, a uh, brown skinned woman with black hair and it's short and it's perfect and it's perfect to her personality. And this is what we should do. Her envisioning of Clark, she put a little bit of an ethnic spin on it, and I didn't see that before. And uh, and after she did that, I was like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, that makes sense. He'd be culturally diverse. The state of the nature of the world at that point and how far evolution has come, uh, you know, that would make total perfect sense. And, you know, it's little threads like that that are, you know, aren't overlooked because, you know, you're a very accepting of other perspectives of, of, of a project, no matter how closer how much it means to you or whatever one of my personal projects like very set in a very specific time period and and culture so it was like i like the idea of being able to play with a more diverse character set and with clark and five most of the the human characters are actually of a mixed background 
Genevieve, I started drawing as having uh, South Asian roots that are very, very visible. The leader of the town that Clark is is from is drawn off a combination of my father and James Edward almost. So. Yeah, it's good, too. The, the preliminary sketches were awesome on that. She hit the nail on the head. And I mean, ultimately, if I can compare the story to anything, is that it's maybe a young adult version of uh, BSG with, with a robot friendship thrown in the mix at the at the heart of it. You know what I mean? Like, so, uh, like, beyond Clark and Five being the main characters and their friendship, everything surrounded in the story is can be most akin, likened to Battlestar Galactica in the sense of robots and humans and the counterbalance and you know, one race trying to overthrow the other. Oh, man, it sounds so exciting. I cannot wait for this. This sounds like a really fun book. And also, I mean, on a personal level, like part of me squeeing a bit because it's like two people who I enjoy very much working on a book together. I'm like, ah, like hurry up and make it. <laughs> I think Chris could agree that we're actually at a point where we're probably going to be picking up a lot of pace. And I personally have a deadline that she's aware of where I'm going to be exhibiting in San Diego next year. I have a table. Um, I have a table I'm sharing with part of, um, I'm not too sure if you know, Pat Loca, but he's, uh, he's a guy in indie comics. Uh, he's got a podcast and, uh, he's shown up in X-Men books. Oh, illustrated him into X-Men books. Pat's a great dude. Real nice guy. Amazing. Uh, bend over backwards for independent creators. And he's got this row of tables in San Diego. And I was very lucky enough to be able to sign a slot opened up. And I was lucky enough to uh, to slip right in. So I'm going to be exhibiting next year, and I'm intending to bring all my books, including and especially Clark and Five, to the table. So that way I can hopefully get a good audience, a good diverse audience for it, and I want people to see Chris's artwork. You know, I want to put Chris's artwork out there as soon as possible. Awesome. Hey, if I can actually get the book done for Heroes, I'll have the book at, at my table at Heroes, hopefully. There you uh, go. I, I had the sketchbook there, but... Uh, Heroes was a little weird this year. It was like if you didn't have a full completed comic for sure, it was it was really slow. And I know like um, Fabian and and uh, Katie and and uh, Mags were were sitting next to me, and they said like uh, as soon as uh, their issues of Kim and Kim and Jade Street had all gone, it got really slow as far as as Prince went, but. It was definitely like it's it's something I really want to be able to have. I want to have that. I want to have deep breath. Hopefully, I'll have another project online at that point. But I'm I'm trying to not burn my candle on both ends at the moment too. Totally understandable. But thank you so much to the both of you for jumping in. And thanks, Chris, for uh, popping in when you did, because I'm so glad we got to talk Clark and Five. And I was like, oh, I hope she hurries up and jumps in so we can get this going, because I think that's a book that people should look out for. And again, Johnny, it's always great to chat with you, man. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to chat again and maybe it won't be another year before I get to do so. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having us on. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited about talking about the project, specifically the book, but more so the uh, collaboration between me and Chris. I mean, we were kind of like the missing links in the CACN uh, uh, string of shows that he had going, you know, as a matter <laughs> of fact, you, you could feel, you could literally isolate a playlist of all the CACN people. And, you know, and, and you know, we'll fit real, real nice right in the middle of that. You know what I mean? Oh, that's actually a great idea. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a little family we've made for ourselves and we all got each other's back. So it's a really cool thing. And I'm really happy to finally get on the podcast uh, with everyone else, too. And I know Johnny's going to hold it over your head if, if like, Steve gets a third one again. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about that at, before you came in. <laughs> Steve's was awesome. The the historic one, awesome, but it, it's like it was so good. get to. I was like, well, he was going over a retrospective of the history of comics. It's a long time, like. Yeah, no, that was that was awesome. No, Steve, Steve did an awesome job on that one. Uh, definitely, uh, props to my dude. Thank you for having us on. I appreciate it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the show's great. Keep up the great work with it. And, you know, if, uh, Thank you. if you ever want me on again to, to bore everybody to death, I'd be more than happy to. Yeah, if you ever want me to just, like, fill a half hour about the history of the Robins, that's, that's <laughs> the thing that I do. Everyone knows it's what I do. I, I know... <laughs> I'm proud to know that I, I have a Robin expert. If I ever need any information on Robin at all, 
God willing, if I ever end up in Hollywood writing movie scripts and they're doing a solo Robin movie, the first person I'm calling is Chris. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> well, before we go, let everybody know where they could find more of your work online. And if there's any other projects you want to quickly plug before we wrap up, uh, please feel free to do so. You can follow me on both Twitter and Instagram with the at sign Sugar X Bomber. And I also have Facebook, uh, Lirio Art. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at JohnnyC138. I've got four books in production, one already published. That's our time of the comic book with Joseph Arnold. We've got Surrounded by Death with Joe Martinez, who, Adrian, you met uh, this year, I believe. Yeah, really great guy. Yep, yep. We got Clark and Five coming out soon. And me and Jamal are going to be working on a project as well, uh, an untitled superhero story that I've been, a Batman story, kind of like uh, the best equivalent I can, I can equate it to. But uh, me and Jamal got something coming out soon. And all the projects have Facebook pages that are in development. And um, we'll probably end up doing the big social media push and announcement for the Clark and Five page when this goes live. Very cool. Thank you again, because, you know, just thank you, because I had so much fun doing this. Thank you for making my day, because otherwise I would have been very bored. (laughs) (laughs) Right on, man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Anytime. And that'll do it for this episode of Adrian Has Issues. And we will see you next issue. Thank you for listening to Adrian Has Issues. Please be sure to visit adrianhasissues.com to stream or download our other great episodes. Like us on Facebook at Adrian Has Issues, on Instagram at Adrian Has Issues Pod, and follow us on Twitter at Adrian Has Issues. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the Satchel Podcast app, available on iOS and Android. Adrian Has Issues is a proud member of the Nerd Sloth Network, home to such great podcasts as Nerds on Tap, Cinefreak Critique, and Saturday Morning Cartoon Boom. Visit them at nerdsloth.com. <laughs>